On this edition of the Bill Kelly Show podcast with Scott Radley, that's me sitting in for Bill, we're going to be talking with the head of Ontario Science Table, Dr. Peter Uni, about Omicron, about what is going on with this and whether the lockdowns or shutdowns or whatever you want to call it that we got this week were warranted. We'll be talking about that. We're going to talk about what is coming up in the world of politics this year. We know 2022 is going to be jam-packed with political stories. Like what? Well, stick around. You'll find out what we're going to be talking about over the next 12 months. And every Canadian, it seems, almost every Canadian, as close to unanimous as you're going to get in a poll, says they are now concerned to some degree or another about inflation and the rising cost of living. But you may be surprised to find out what group of Canadians is more likely to be spending and less concerned. Stick around. Today on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. First up today, you heard yesterday what was said by Doug Ford and by the provincial government. You heard about the regulations that are back. I can't remember if they're calling it now a code orange or step two or there's a variety of different things. Um, Here's Doug Ford from yesterday. These will be targeted and they will be time limited. The immediate goal of these measures will be to blunt the latest wave so we can ease the pressure on our hospitals and allow more time to deliver these all-important booster shots, which continue at a tremendous pace. So we are back to where we were a few months ago, it seems. Restaurants closed for inside dining, 50% capacity at many stores, gyms closed, sports audiences either non-existent or down to very small crowds, many, many, many other things. You can go and I don't have time to tell you all of them now. You can either, if you haven't already read them, you can go and look them up. There's there's many things there to contemplate. But a lot of people uh, seemingly not either thrilled or not really understanding why this needs to be done or if this needs to be done. I want to bring in Dr. Peter Uni. He's the director of Ontario Science Table. He's a professor of medicine and epidemiology at the University of Toronto. He joins us now. Dr. Uni, thank you for your time as always today. Thanks for having me again. So I think the confusion for a lot of people right now is knowing what we know or learning what we're learning about Omicron and the fact that it seems to be far less leading to far less serious illnesses and that it's far less impactful, I think, on people's lives generally when they get it, at least broadly, that seems to be the consensus. Is all of this shut down again? Is all of this really necessary? Yes. Really, we need to be aware of what we're talking about. It's a numbers game. So, you know, right now, the situation is when we just estimate what's going on, taking into account our extent of vaccination, our age structure, the fact that not many people luckily in the past were infected as compared, for instance, a place like the UK or South Africa. What we see is that for every 100 infection on average, we will see roughly one person admitted to the hospital. And for every 1000 infection, we will see one person uh, admitted to the ICU. And uh, right now in this province, we already have probably right now, we would have an opportunity to diagnose 100,000 cases a day, we only will detect roughly one in five. It could even be less than that that we detect. And uh, this shows you the challenges we have. And, uh, you know, this this, uh, story of um, less severity, it's true 
to a certain extent. But if you have a variant that is four times less likely, that's what we're talking about, to bring you to the ICU, you only need four times as many cases and you're again at the same level. That's the challenge. Am I correct that when someone comes to hospital, if they show up at the emergency ward, that everybody who comes there will get swabbed for COVID? Oh, that's absolutely true now that we have two different things. Now we're talking about incidental diagnosis. We have for the first time an issue because we have so many cases in the province that hospital patients and their patients in an emergency room all are reflecting what goes uh, on in the community. And this means, you know, we know that from the UK, that's hardly surprising, that 30 to 40% of um cases right now and to try to disentangle that now that are in hospital are what we call incidental diagnosis they were admitted with but not for covid but it could get worse because of covid and you also need to be aware of that if something like that happens it still changes the reality for the hospital staff they need to deal with those patients much differently the numbers i've given you is not with covid that's for covid Mm. Right. And, and, and that was kind of what I was going to ask. And, and I think you, you started to answer it there. And that is, if I come in then with a broken leg or I come in with tonsillitis or I come in with a heart attack or something else, I could be in the ICU with something completely unrelated to COVID, but it's going to show up as a COVID number and suggest no. that the numbers are much higher. Are they not? Yeah, I need to be, you need to be very careful with that. Two things. One is for um, ICU admissions, uh, the factor is more, more like, you know, one in 10. So one in 10 probably is again incidental. Um, but one, one issue, you know, we talked about myocardial infarction as an example. Myocardial infarction is much, much, much more likely when you have COVID. And, uh, you know, there will be a lot of challenges that we then won't understand anymore. Is the person now coming in with or for COVID because, uh, you know, the risk is much higher to have um, a complication like a, an acute thrombosis. What it, that's, a, that's a myocardial infarction. And uh, we will not be able to distinguish all of that. The point really is that that it doesn't explain the slopes we're seeing, these increases that we're seeing. And the estimates that I've given you really are for those that are genuinely caused by the disease okay. and not just the disease being an innocent bystander or half okay. innocent bystander. I, if I heard correctly, Dr. Moore, yesterday during the press conference, and you can correct me if I didn't hear this right, uh, but I think he said that many of the people who are coming into hospital with the new variant, with Omicron, they will need oxygen, but won't necessarily need a respirator. Did I hear him right on that one? Absolutely. That it's a little bit different? So, so what we right now estimate based on everything we know is that only about every 10th patient will need to go to the ICU. That's different than before. You know, before we had about every third patient who was uh, admitted to the hospital that who needed to go to the ICU. That's a difference again. But again, remember, it's a numbers game. We have far too many cases. And that's just an old wisdom in infectious disease epidemiology, you know, that um, transmission always trumps severity. If you have something that is not very transmissible, but really severe, that's Ebola, for example, it will cause a lot less trouble than something which is less severe, but highly transmissible. Mm. That's SARS-CoV-2. So with this, with this rush of more cases and therefore more people coming to hospital, 
have we is this entirely the result of people needing to come to hospital and hear what i'm saying on this one I mean, we have lots of cases every year of people who have bronchitis or have pneumonia thousands of cases every year not all of them now the, many of them will come to the hospital but someone who has something that's a little less a flu or something they wouldn't necessarily come they would stay at home and say i'll i'll ride this out at home now yes. that we've had so much coverage of covid you hear, you get these symptoms and you think, oh no, I've got COVID. I'm in real trouble. Are people coming mm -hmm. to hospital who don't really need to because of fear of what might happen? Well, you know, it may happen, you know, that people are, of course, insecure. We've all been in this pandemic for too long and we've all had enough and we're, we're all, you know, just at the edge. No, that's clear. The point really is you need a good red flag. And the good red flag is when you just, if you have a stare at home if you basically walk these stairs and you start to be breathless you can't walk the stairs as normal that's the moment when you need to seek help that's when you need to talk to a healthcare provider or you need at least to have uh, your uh, oxygen levels measured you no know? that's that's what's needed the people you see in hospital admitted for covid that's not people who just are there because they're anxious about this this is where it gets really difficult now, I think. And, and you know, you, you make your points and I, and I, I appreciate you, you, you making that point that we though do know that many people who are going have now been double vaccinated. Some have been triple vaccinated. Um, it, and yet they're still getting COVID, maybe not with the same severity, but is this suggesting the fact that we've had these people who are vaccinated and still getting this, is this suggesting that we're just going to have to be dealing with this forever, that there's going to be variants that are going to come along and at some point we're going to have to say, you know, this is just a fact of life and we're going to have to find oh. some other way to deal with this? Oh, look, absolutely. What happens is uh, I really with Omicron, with this wave, after this wave, nearly everybody will have had some immunity, either through vaccination, through infection or a combination of the two. And this will change the, the face of the pandemic and waves, you know, for our healthcare systems uh, will become ripples and we can start to deal with it differently. So the game changer is immunity for nearly everybody. I'm afraid to say, yes, COVID will stay with us. That that's uh, most likely the case. This will not go away, but it will change now. So when we make it through this Omicron wave, this will be challenging, but we can do it. After that, uh, also thanks to the good weather, but mainly because of immunity for nearly everybody, um, things will calm down quite a bit. We will probably need another uh, vaccine dose. It could be a different vaccine in autumn to make it then through the next winter. But things most likely will look a lot less challenging. You know, I can't exclude there's another curveball coming, you know, with another variant or so. But I don't think it will be the same. The game changer is immunity for nearly everybody. And I, and I certainly hope you're right. I, this morning I was reading about something uh, that was a, a, a new strain called IHU that was discovered yes. in France that apparently originated in Cameroon that has 46 different mutations, and which means more ways correct. to elude the vaccine. Uh, you know, I, I hope that you're right. I hope your optimism is right. But I keep hearing these things go, oh man, is this the next thing? Of course. Thing? It's, it's, a, it's a challenge. We need to be aware of that. But, you know, just taking talking about IHU, um, this... Uh, basically uh, had the possibility to gain a foothold in France around the same time as Omicron. You know, there were at least 12 cases and there was some community transmission in France and it didn't 
uh, uh, get a foothold, which is good news. So it was completely outcompeted by Omicron. So I would hope, uh, and I'm carefully uh, optimistic here, that this will not be such a big issue. We will need to carefully monitor it, and there will also be other variants. But again, remember, if we had Omicron, uh, you know, 14 months ago or so, we would be in a lot of trouble. Now we are still in trouble to a certain extent, but we can deal with the challenge. Same story 14 months ago. Oh, dear God, we would have needed to have a stay at home order and would still have struggled. How do we balance? OK, so so again, you, you've made a case for why these decisions and why these regulations needed to be brought in. But how do we now balance the physical keeping ourselves physically safe from the mental and emotional toll that this is taking because we keep hearing that this is causing a lot of those issues oh, I, I don't know how you balance the two look right now um you can't have a situation where our healthcare system just basically is trashed you know so we need to prioritize that and need to move through this wave but it's really important to realize we need to ride out this wave this is not about suppressing case counts making sure that they're again below 1000 or so why should we not do that? Because the moment when we lift restrictions, it flares up again. What we need to do is we need to plant the wave and ride it out, get as many needles into people's arms again as we can, and then make sure that at any given time, which is not overwhelming the healthcare system, right through this wave to the very end. And in the end, we will have more than 95% of all people you know, with some immunity against SARS-CoV-2, the virus. Uh, Dr. Uni, you are uh, clearly a respected doctor. Your opinion is sought on this a lot. You are you are someone who has a great say in what people are doing. Um, but we are hearing, you know, d depending on which doctor you listen to, there are lots of doctors who have lots of different opinions on this. How do we know who the right doctor is to listen to? Look, one thing which we really need to be aware of, being a physician, being a doctor, doesn't mean you're good at math good at epidemiology <laughs> or good at mathematical modeling. No? And uh, that's one of the challenges we have. Um, this is terribly confusing. I, I can understand that. But, you know, one of the challenges is that there are colleagues out there who actually are not qualified to talk about the epidemiological situation, about mathematical models, etc. This makes things quite challenging sometimes, to be honest with you. Just one more thing before we let you go, because we are short on time, sadly. Um, I look around the world and I see problems everywhere popping up, uh, outbreaks all over the place in every province, it seems, and in almost every country in the world. Absolutely. So so when when people are upset about what's happening here, is this government or the Canadian government or different provincial governments, are are they to blame or is this entirely out of their control? Oh, this is absolutely out of everybody's control. Omicron is a real challenge for everybody. We need to be aware of that, you know. Countries, you know, that had a COVID zero approaches like Australia, guess what? They struggle big time, even though they're in the summer months right now. So this is absolutely normal. This is very confusing for everybody, including elected decision makers. And a lot of elected decision makers in the world are still asleep at the steering wheel. I'm so glad, you know, that this step was taken here. We're much earlier, unfortunately, regarding Omicron. We're again very early with that. But also there was a swift reaction now, which was the absolutely right reaction.
Dr. Peter Uni, the Director of Ontario Science Table, I very much appreciate your time, as always. Thank you for this. Thanks for having me. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. We are now into 2022. I, I assume you've noticed, unless New Year's Eve was just one unbelievable bender and you're just coming to right now, uh, you know we're we're well into 2022. And there are a whole bunch of political stories that, you know, there's always stuff that we can't anticipate, but there are some things that we we can be pretty sure are coming down the pipe. These are stories that are, are predictable, not necessarily in the outcome, but that they are going to become a thing. I want to bring in Dr. Lori Turnbull. She's the director of the School of Public Administration with Dalhousie University. She joins us now. Dr. Turnbull, thank you for the time as always today. Thank you so much for having me and happy new year. It, to you as well. Thank you for doing this. Uh, so let's go through a few of these that we are, I think, very confident. I'd be very shocked, frankly, if they didn't become big political stories over the next 12 months. And let's start very broadly, and that is with the global economy. That It sounds like it's an economic story, but I think it's far more than that. I think it very much becomes a political story because we have an awful lot of governments that have spent an awful lot of money over the last year, year and a half, two years, propping up their economies during COVID. And now we're starting to see some inflation and not just a little inflation. We're going to talk about this later, propping up. What if this continues? What, what if this continues and continues to rise? What does this do to these various governments, including here in Canada? Yeah, I, I think you're absolutely right. Like, no matter what happens, no matter which way things unfold and how long it takes us to get out of the current wave that we're in, um, definitely economic, you know, kind of stability is going to be a key issue this year and I think in the coming years because we've had such an unprecedented situation with COVID and economies have been totally destabilized by work having been shut down, businesses are shut down, and it kind of, you know, the opening and shutting is in that kind of cycle ends up being very destabilizing. And so figuring out how we're going to balance that off and how we're going to phase out programs and then move into, you know, something that looks more like a more normal economy. And I mean, it's, I think you're right, like it's going to be a political issue because it's an issue of leadership. It's an issue of decisions, how different governments are going to decide to move through this um, you know, it really and how, how like in the Canadian context, how the political parties in a minority parliament are going to be jostling each other mm. for certain outcomes, right? Like what kind of effect is the NDP going to have on the liberal government? How effective is the conservative opposition going to be? And, and is their message on inflation resonating? And then there's an issue of whether, you know, this is a global issue, obviously, as much as the conservatives are saying this is this is a Justin Trudeau issue. Of course, it's it's something that's happening around the world as governments are reacting to COVID-19 and the economic implications. A few things you just said there. Let me try and go through them bit by bit here. The, the first one is uh, our federal government has been very clear uh, that it has, it, when it was talking about the spending that it plans to do and what happened with the spending in COVID, it was saying we'll be able to handle this because the good times are going to continue. Growth is going to continue. What happens to the federal liberals if growth doesn't continue and if things go a little sour economically? Mm-hmm. That's it. And you're right. I mean, they have they have absolutely made the argument, listen, like we, the government is going to be here for you. It's got your back and we can afford this because, you know, and then we because, kind yes. of look at how it maps out over time. It's like, yep, we're going to pick this back up and, and the economy is going to be strong enough to kind of get us through it. But, you know, again, like what if it's not? Because now I think people's expectations of government are quite different. People really do expect people government to be there for you, whether as an individual or as a business. 
And so it's, you know, the government can't just say, well, you know, sorry, you're on your own now. Like there's, there is now expectation of a, quite a robust social safety net. However, for a while, I think people were a little bit more tolerant of the government sort of doing this and responding to what, what people and businesses needed during COVID-19 without a clear sense of what people have been calling a fiscal anchor. But I think people are looking for the, you know, the, the tide to turn on that and they're looking for a more sort of fiscally, you know, mm-hmm. not necessarily conservative, but how do we map out a plan that we're going to be able to see through so that we can rein in spending. And I think the government's got some ideas like, you know, taxing big corporations, global corporations, and, you know, those big organizations paying their fair share kind of thing. But whether that's going to turn around into enough money to be able to pay for all this stuff, I don't know. Well, if the federal government decided that it had to um, pull back a little bit, tighten the purse strings a little bit, maybe not spend as much going forward as it was planning to, can it survive as a minority government? Because I'm not sure the NDP is going to continue to prop it up if it decides that all of a sudden those expensive campaign promises that were so appealing to many of the NDP members are suddenly not there anymore. That's it. I mean, I think it, it's a really going to be a very interesting issue going forward in terms of the politics of the situation and, and what makes sense from a policy perspective and what makes sense from an economic perspective. Because on the one hand, I think you're right. Uh, Jagmeet Singh and the NDP don't want to support the Liberals you know, turn to the right on any, you know, in in any universe. They do not want to be the people who are doing that. And if Jagmeet Singh has a hope of trying to maintain his own support in his own party and those supporters, they're going to have to make sure that they're true to those messages. And Jagmeet Singh has has been clear, you know, that he wants to pull the Liberal government in a direction that is going to be helping Canadians and there for them during COVID-19 and all the rest of it. So I think, you know, he wants to play that space. However, he doesn't want an election. Like, there's no way, right? And so... I think we're already seeing the political parties behave differently in this minority government than they did the last one because they all know that they can't just pull the plug to purge the place and go to election when they don't get along. They actually do have to make this work because Canadians don't want another election. It's not in anyone's best interest. And so I think really what happens to the Liberals is relative to what happens to the other parties too. If the Liberals are going to experience a loss, it's going to be because somebody else experiences a gain. There is a sense of zero sum here. And so are the Conservatives going to be able to mobilize any kind of, I think, you know, that's going to be a big part of it too. Is Aaron O'Toole going to be able to stabilize himself and find a more clear ground here and to take more of the leadership of the party where he's able to be more effective at holding the government to account and kind of pushing the policy agenda? A lot of the questions that the Conservatives have raised so far toward the government in this new government has been about the economy and been about inflation and been about deficits and debts. Is that the winning position for them to continue to hammer on because if things do go south are yeah. you the or do you want to be the party that has been out there screaming from the top of the hilltops that this is dangerous we're in trouble you got to come to the party that's going to be fiscally responsible and that's not them see i think that that it's not necessarily a bad thing for the conservatives to situate themselves in a space where we're saying hey we've got to be careful with what we're spending i think there are lots of Canadians who are who are worried in the you know short medium long term about how this is all going to work out but the key I think is it's it's not enough the conservatives then have to be the party to go to right and so I think Aaron O'Toole kind of tried to do that in the federal campaign where he he showed himself to be willing to lean to the center and to be a bit more of that party of, of a middle ground but not enough people change their vote toward him you know like I mean I know the conservatives still won the popular vote but he was, ultimately was not successful in getting supporters of other parties to come to him to a, to a level where he would be 
you know, an, a real alternative to government at this point. True, though he, gonna have to though Lori, he also though did, Aaron O'Toole also did make so many expensive promises that it was almost liberal light. And I wonder if now is the time for them to say, look, we're going to be the party that is fiscally conservative. We're going to follow our name here and be the, the, the anchor when things, if they do go south, that you can say they're the ones who are responsible with your money. Yeah. But again, I, I think you definitely, like you're definitely onto something there, but I still think at the same time, they've got to be clear about where they are and other issues too. And so the fiscal responsibility isn't going to be enough. It's going to have to be also, they've, I think the Conservatives more broadly have to figure out where they are on different policy issues, on different social issues, so that Canadians are able, more Canadians are able to say, okay, listen, I, I know what you stand for. I trust that. The leader is clearly in charge of the party. There's a sense of unity here. There's something that there's values and principles that the party stands for, and then I can get behind that. So I think there's still a challenge around showing and I think as, and as long as there are these kinds of questions in the party about Aaron O'Toole's leadership, it really undermines the party's strength as a place mm. to park your vote, no matter what your values are. All right. Let's move from federal because we're talking about a bunch of the political stories that we're anticipating in 2022. Um, I think that all of that stuff we're talking about, while it affects the federal position, the federal picture, has a trickle-down effect, and I don't mean in economic terms trickle-down, although it could be economic. Uh, we have a provincial election coming up here in Ontario uh, this year. Is that is what's happening in Ottawa with finances, with other things, is that going to have an effect on what happens with the vote here in this province? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. It does in every provincial election. And I think, you know, all eyes right now are on, you know, how, how this election is going to go down in Ontario in June. I think there's lots of issues that are really, you know, it's, it's very difficult, I think, to isolate a policy issue that's completely in the realm of one government or another. I think as we see more complex policy issues, it requires more collaboration, more, you know, whether it, it comes in the form of cooperation or conflict or both. It requires interaction between the different orders of government. So something like childcare, Ontario hasn't signed yet. Um, you know, healthcare. the provinces are always looking for, you know, more money for that and for the federal government to pay a greater share. I think those sorts of issues, long-term care, COVID is, is just exposed and in some cases made worse some of the policy challenges that the two governments deal with. And so I think absolutely, you know, none of this is, you know, exists in a vacuum. A lot of these federal issues that we're talking about, what Ottawa's going to do, that conversation is going to happen in the provincial campaign as well. What difference will there be politically if COVID is basically neutered by election time or vice versa, if there is still a variant running rampant that requires more closures or more decisions like we heard yesterday in Ontario? How much is COVID going to play into that election? Yeah, it's interesting. Like we can do a, a bit of a comparison to the election that we had in Nova Scotia last summer, where by that point, COVID was really like, it, there wasn't, I think, a sense that COVID was a major problem at the time from a public health perspective. The rates were very low. Vaccination rate was, was high. And so people went to the polls not feeling like they were in an emergency. They went into the polls feeling, you know, kind of looking forward. And so there wasn't a sense that, okay, we're going to reward the government for the good work they've done, even though the liberal government, you know, Nova Scotia government did a fantastic job managing COVID this whole time. Um, there was no sense that the voter felt like, okay, well, we have to, you know, thank the Liberals for that, right? Like, nope, uh, Tim Houston and the Progressive Conservatives formed a majority. And so it'll be interesting to see. I think if COVID is, is a rampant pub, like, public health threat at the time, if we're in a wave at that point, then that becomes the dominant issue. And the, refer the, the election at that point will be a referendum on who do you want to lead us through the crisis. And then 
Doug Ford, I think, is, you know, has the advantage, if you can say that, of being the incumbent, but also somebody who has, has not, you know, I think at the beginning of COVID, Doug Ford's popularity is very high. We've only seen that crumble over time. And more and more, you know, where is Doug Ford? Why isn't he coming out and, and you know, talking to the people about the, the issues and the, the decisions that his government is making? He's only lost capital since then. And so it might not be the case that a referendum, even though he's the incumbent, if the election is about that, it might not be great for him. Uh, let's, uh, we, we short, we don't have a ton of time. We're short on time in fact, but so let's move south of the border for a second. Cause this is also going to affect us as far as a political story, um, this year. Uh, I read a piece, I think it was in the globe in the last week that says the U S political system is teetering right now. And with a number of things happening in 2022, uh, it could start to crumble. Now that may be a little hyperbolic and it may be a little over the top, but there are things there that could be significant. Midterm elections, sitting presidents almost always get crushed in those. That could have a huge impact on the balance of power and whether Joe Biden has the ability to do whatever he wants to do. I mean, when we look south of the border, do we see, should we be concerned as Canadians about what we see down there? Absolutely. We should be concerned. For lots of reasons, um, you know, one of which is that we are so heavily affected by American media. And so a lot of what we are exposed to, you know, whether we're on Twitter or we're watching the news or we're even watching, you know, kind of fiction kind of material, like every, everything that we consume, you know, that it, it affects, you know, how we think about things. And a lot of what we consume is American. We are seeing, I think, a real erosion of a consensus in the United States and a consensus around the rules of the game. So to have somebody come out of an election, like, you know, Trump comes out of the election of 2020 and denies the fact that he lost. We don't see that. You know, like democracy is about accepting it if you lost and getting on with it. But now if we see that kind of consensus around the rules crumble, there is a loss of stability. There is a, an increase in polarization. It seems like every, you know, every issue, the Republicans and the Democrats, and they do have this two-party system, which we don't have here, but it's just like they're completely at odds with one another. And so how do you then build a consensus back where we at least get some healthy sense that we're all, we all have a common, you know, common interest in keeping things civil? And so there, I mean, this can happen and you can, I read some of the same articles I think that you did and there's very interesting analysis of the evolution of American democracy in different times that it's been in crisis. And so whether you can take this moment and point to a similar time in history, you know, depends on the analysis that you're doing. But yes, I think we should be very concerned, that especially, you know, as we go through our own elections. And we've seen very divisive conversations in the past year or two years over, you know, vaccines, what the role of government is, and even those economic questions bring to the forefront, you know, what kind of country we want to be and what we want the, what the government to be for. Those are all deep existential questions that I think, you know, we have to look at too. Well, and one of the things, and you talk about the the American media that we are exposed to here, one of the things that's become very clear, and this was in that piece that I'm referring to, is that, and you just alluded to it, there was a time when you could agree to disagree and find some consensus somewhere along the way. Uh, now, especially in the States, but I think it's leaking up here in a big way, um, it, if you don't agree with the other person, if they're on the other side politically from you, they're not just wrong they're bad. They are a bad yeah. person who must be stopped because their positions are evil and they are a horrible person. And if you don't stop them, it's your moral imperative 
to not just yeah. disagree with them, but to prevent them from having their points of view take any kind of hold. That's a, boy, w- once that happens, how do you possibly, and it's not just there, it's here. How do you possibly find any kind of common ground? How do you govern? Well, that's it, right? Because as you were saying, like you, if you get to that point where the ends justify the means, then democracy is absolutely in crisis because that's the opposite of democracy. Democracy says there are rules to protect everybody and that's important. And, you know, so I think, yeah, how do you govern? That's a really scary question. Who is going to be the leader who is able to turn this around? Because I do think leadership has a huge role to play. I think um, intellectual self-defense has a huge role to play. We all have responsibility. It's not, it doesn't work to say some magic unicorn is going to come and run for president and fix everything. Because obviously Trump is not, um, you know, he's not the person who came in and created all this. He was a symptom. Yeah. And, you know, back in, I think, what was it, 1980? You, you, you'd probably be better than me. I think it was 1980 when Ronald Reagan won, or was it 84 when he won re-election, won 49 of the 50 states. Um, mm. People were clearly at least willing to consider that the candidate on the other side might be a good candidate now. Uh, I think going into almost every election here and there, people know now who they're going to vote for in the next election because you're locked in already. It doesn't matter what the person is or who they are or what they are ideologically you know where you're going and and they're immovable and that's a problem it is because it means that the conversation is not real it means that when people are having debates in elections like you are there primarily to support the person or the cause that you're supporting and that's it you're not listening there's no possibility of transformative dialogue and that's a real problem right that means that that the conversations that are happening are not gonna are not changing anything for the better it's just a galvanizing Mm. around what you already thought which is, which is, again, like how, how can any of us make good decisions in that context? It's, it becomes impossible. Dr. Lori Turnbull, Director of the School of Public Administration with Dalhousie University. Thank you so much for the time today. Really appreciate it. Thank you, too. Take care. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. A poll came out, a survey came out in the last few days, and I'm not entirely sure that I'm shocked by the numbers that are in here, or maybe the numbers I am, not the, the general concept. Because it was a poll by Leger asking people about their views on inflation in this country and their concerns about it. And there is widespread concern, the numbers found, uh, among Canadians about the rising cost of things. 89% saying they had some concerns. However, yes, because there is a but here. Some are more concerned than others and some are actually pretty optimistic. And I think, and we'll get to it in a second, I think you may be a little surprised about, because I was, who the really more optimistic or the group is or the group that's more likely saying they're more likely to buy, make a big purchase or, or spend some money this year. I, I, I w- it was not who I expected. I want to bring in Dave Schultz. He's the executive VP of Leger. He joins us now. Dave, thanks for the time today. Appreciate it as always. Oh, thank you for having me on, Scott. We, um, it's, it's always fun to describe groups in terms of uh, glass half full or glass half empty. And um, depending on which glass you're holding, probably you don't really understand the other side's view very well because uh, that's why you're holding your particular glass. So um, looking at this, there are some very different um, approaches depending on which of those glasses you're holding. And let's start with those who are, and maybe this part is not all that surprising. If you are financially successful, and I don't mean Elon Musk billionaire level stuff, I'm just talking doing reasonably well, uh, you are 
more likely to think that things are going to be okay and that things are pretty hunky-dory. Why is that? Even though it may be obvious, but why is that? <laughs> well, I, I think it is a little bit obvious in that we have a little, you know, the old, the more uh, economically well-off population has uh, more assets to spend, uh, greater look ahead. When we look at people who earn less than $40,000, uh, most of those are very worried about rising inflation and are very unlikely to be making a, uh, a significant purchase in the next year because they see a greater likelihood of their finances declining over the next six months. And you know, when I, when I asked that question and I know some people are out there slapping their forehead going, well, duh, like what a dumb yeah. question. And, but the, the flip side is, haven't we always heard that people who have more are more concerned about what they have? And yes, I know I, uh, you're absolutely right about if you don't have enough, you're concerned on the day to day basis about just getting by, but people who have investments are concerned about those investments as well. Maybe a different context of why, but I, I, I was still sort of surprised that it wasn't more universal that almost everybody was concerned. Well, and that usually is the way it is. And this is the time of year when we see a lot of those polls come out. Um, how are you expecting your finances or your personal economic wealth to be in the next year? And you do see people who have a larger investments be a little more concerned, especially after the year that we've just had. It's interesting. We ask people about how optimistic they are about how things are going, just in general, compared to a year ago. And uh, we see, again, people in the lower uh, income brackets are more pessimistic than people who are well off. And again, you know, slap your forehead. It's a little bit of a, a yeah, that's what we'd expect. But it isn't what we'd expect at this time of year, um, because often uh, people are very optimistic about the future, especially if you're a lower income. Things are going to get better is the mm-hmm. attitude. We're not seeing that so much this year. And uh, you talked about it's not surprising that people are concerned about uh, uh, the the rising inflation rates. Look at the news we've had over the last little while. We've seen, uh, everyone's hearing about how much container shipping is going up. Ikea last week announced a 9% increase on average across all their stores. Uh, We're hearing a lot about food prices going up. So if if putting food on the table is a concern to you as a household, you are definitely more pessimistic and concerned about inflation than people in the uh, upper income brackets at this point. Right. It's a different context, but I, I absolutely understand what you're talking about. Now, okay, so for those people who are in the more upper bracket who are feeling better about things, based on what we know, based on the facts, is that a reasonable or a smart position or are they being optimistic that maybe shouldn't be there well i i think you know optimism is an interesting thing because everyone overall he's talking about 89 percent are concerned about inflation Uh, while it's higher in the lower income brackets it's across the board so there is a general concern it's it's really only quebecers who are the least worried about the cost of uh things going up uh but that was before the lockdown and I'm sure there's some more pessimism creeping in. This survey was finished mid-December. So what's happened with Omicron in the next last few weeks will have affected some of the pessimism, pessimism, optimism outlooks as well. Yeah. And of course, you know, if, if Alberta's transfer payments were ever to be cut off, Quebec might be a little more concerned, <laughs> but that's a different discussion for a different day. Um, two thirds though, in this poll that you took, two thirds, so 89% have some concern about inflation. And I think that's, I mean... 
I don't know how many polls you do. I would think 89% is probably almost about as close to unanimous as you're going to get on many things. So that's, let's say almost every Canadian, right. almost every Canadian has some concern. 64% though, and this is, I think where things begin to really sort of shape up and see what does that mean? 64% in your survey said they are not planning in 2022 to make any major purchases. That is not a great sign for the economy when two thirds of Canadians say, "Yeah, now I'm holding on to my money." That's and there's so much. If you look at so the the amount of money and the savings that people have, it's increased so much over the last few years during the pandemic. Uh, but yet we're still not ready to spend, and we're still not ready to spend because we're generally a little pessimistic about what is this going to mean? Are our mortgage rates going to go up in the next year? Uh, how much more is it going to cost to put food on the table? Um, how much more is it going to cost to buy a, a chair at Ikea or whatever it is? Uh, I think people are now a little hesitant to spend, which if I'm a business person, I'm a little concerned about that because I'm also gone into another lockdown um, and I need something to stimulate the recovery afterwards. And and your question here was uh, about a major purchase. And so it, it, we may be talking about two different things, but I would be particularly concerned if I was in a, if I was in a business that was not essential and owning a restaurant or tourism or something where you don't have to buy it, that would be where I would be most concerned, I would think. Yeah, definitely. So we asked about a major purchase, such as buying a new vehicle, house, or going on a major trip. So tourism is a little bit worked into that. And there was a general sense that people would be ready to recover this next year, ready to go on that trip, buy that next car. Um, but we're still hesitating. The interesting thing is you talked about different segments of the population. The most optimistic or most likely to be making a significant purchase is in the 18 to 34 year range. So first time home buyers, they're still looking to buy homes, uh, you know, adding that new car. That's the population that is still out there. And if anything, they're the ones that are the most optimistic about recovery coming up. And that's where, and that's where it gets a little weird for me, the answer here and a little unexpected because we are constantly hearing that it's younger people, new people who are new into the workforce, who have the less stable jobs, who aren't as financially established. Those would be the people that I would have more expected would have said, I'm less likely to spend money than the established people who have saved some money and own their home already and may say, I'll go on a trip. I was, I was shocked at the fact that it was the opposite of what I thought it would be. Yeah, it really is. If we just released another study, uh, it's on our website, if anyone wants to go check it out, looking at the youth of Canada and their general optimism for the future is, is, is very positive. Um, but at the same time, they're, they, they recognize that they could leave their job and still survive and find another job. They're a little more fluid when it comes to, or a little less anxious about keeping their jobs and, and making money because they believe it'll always happen. Uh, so it's a very, it's a very optimistic population that we've got growing up uh, in that age bracket. And again, I should, when I asked about optimism, is that optimistic or is that naive because you're young and you don't know yet because you haven't necessarily had to pay all the bills and do all those things yet? Well, it depends on which part of the glass you're looking at this from. <laughs> uh, you know, I'm uh, I'm a little bit older than that, and uh, in my day, this 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 attitude when it was not prevalent. Um, so you look back and you say, well, maybe there's a little naivety there, but at the same time, it's what they're doing is working, 
um, they are finding those mm-hmm. new jobs. They are, you know, we, we talk about this past year being the, the time of vast change when it comes to uh, changing jobs and looking for new careers. This is the population that's doing it more than anything else. And whereas uh, an older group, so you look at our the 55 plus group is least likely to be making a significant purchase. They're holding on to their money at this point. The younger group is let's spend, let's enjoy, um, and it'll all turn out. I'll find another job because I know I can find another job if I need to. Yeah. And, and again, I, I go back. I mean, I, I, I remember my grandmother who lived through the depression, many people listening, either their parents or their grandparents, they heard stories. And, you know, th- when we would eat dinner, there were parts of the roast or whatever that, you know, it would be like, no, we ate those when we were a kid because you had to, and there was a different attitude towards having lived through something. M- many people today, especially younger people. And, and look, I, I applaud their optimism, but many of them, many of us have never lived through real inflation. I mean, back when it was 18% mortgage and 18% interest and all, many people have never lived through that. So I'm wondering if, when I say naive, if you don't know what that's like, are you blindly jumping ahead without realizing what could be coming down the pipe? It's possible. Um, I still think that we're, you know, you'll talk to the economists and they're, they're forecasting uh, some increases, but then they're actually forecasting things to start leveling out. So maybe the 18 to 34 year olds have it right. Let's uh, mm-hmm. it, because spending will lead to a recovery as well. So if this is the population that's going to be spending, the unfortunate thing is that they're not the highest income owners or the highest uh, savings group. Uh, maybe the rest of us need to follow their lead a bit if we're going to recover Could be. from this. Could be. And we have heard lots of politicians, and I don't know whether, again, talking about optimism, whether they are just trying to be optimistic and uh, save their skins or whether they believe it, but say this is transient and temporary and it'll all go away very soon. I mean, who knows if they're right or not right, but maybe they are. Yep. Hard to the, one of the... Um, one of the areas that seems to have changed uh, about spending in recent months is uh, near the beginning of the pandemic and even into months into this, a lot of people, I mean, we, we saw that the price of lumber now, there was a shortage, but there was also huge demand because it was suddenly seemed that many people working from home decided, you know, my office is not really very good. Or if I'm going to be at home in the summer, I need a deck out back or I need to fix a bathroom or something. Um, it, it appears that if people are not making major purchases, that would also fall into that category that even the those kind of things, those home renos that were really driving a huge segment of the economy may be drying up. Yeah, we're, we're, and we're seeing that in other research we're doing as well. That is start, starting to dry up. But part of that, you know, there's been waves of that because as people started, prices went up and we saw massive, you know, inflation within that category of, uh, of home rental. How much does it cost to buy wood? That aspect. That leveled out a bit. We saw people get out there and spend more and supply opened up again. But this would count as a major, you know, major purchase. Renovating that bathroom building that deck this spring could be in jeopardy um, unless people start to be a little, look, look at things a little more optimistically. Let's go back to that idea of transient for just a moment or whether this is a short-term inflation thing that people are worried about. If it is, if it turns out that this is just a blip and it's a, a time we have to get through for a few months or a year, would we not expect that when that ends, that we would see a massive economic boom because all of a sudden all these people with all this extra money that they would have would then be looking to spend it because things are better? That's what I'm reading in terms of what some economists are saying. But there's other, 
There's the other aspect of that. Maybe our lifestyles have just changed enough over the two years that uh, we are going to hold on to more even longer than this. Um, you know, I'm going to go one other question within our survey, and we touched on it as well. Do you expect your finances to improve in the next six months? We talk to people. And, and? 23% say that they see it uh, likely to decline compared to 14% who see it improving. So this next six months, there's a large group of the population that are going to see their income levels reduced relative to a year ago. And that's going to affect not just not just the big purchases, that's going to affect every purchase. Yeah, and, and you know, one of the things about this that um, I was thinking about, you know, talking about this and we can say that the inflation may be transient and that, you know, gas won't be as much down the road or bread or whatever else. But I'm, I'm very doubtful that if let's call it Bob's bread factory, uh, you know, they had to raise their prices because of inflation, suddenly inflation drops off. I'm not seeing Bob's bread reduce the prices of their bread because we've now gotten used to paying that price. They're going to keep it and they're going to bring in the profits. So, you know, we, we rarely, I don't think we can expect that we're suddenly going to see prices of everything drop off again, even after inflation dries up. That would be a novel approach for an organization to take, though, yes. You certainly get a certain, if, if IKEA came out a year from now and said they're reducing everything by 9%, that would be a good news story for them. But you're right, that's seldom the way it works out. Yeah, it is. Um, hey, have you, um, we got to go, but have you done uh, over the years, has, has inflation or cost of living, there must have been other polls that you've done, other surveys on cost of living concerns in recent years? There's always a certain amount of cost of living concerns. There's always a certain amount of anxiety, but consumer confidence has generally been higher than it is this year. So and this 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 is showing a different number. This is showing a much higher number at 89% being worried about inflation and 39% overall very worried. This is a significantly higher number than we've than we've ever seen. It is uh, your website is uh, is what if people want to go look at those uh, at this poll and the other ones. Leger360.com. Dave Schultz, Executive VP of Leger. Really appreciate the time. Thanks for this. All right. Thanks, Scott. Take care. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML. The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML. I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free, so you never miss an episode. And make sure that you rate and review.